Chapter 4 The Last Days of Politics Parallels Between the Senile Decline of the Holy Mother Church and the Nanny State I also believe and hope that politics and economics will cease to be as important in the future as they have been in the past. The time will come when most of our present controversies on these matters will seem as trivial or as meaningless as the theological debates in which the keenest minds of the Middle Ages dissipated their energies. Arthur C. Clarke To speak of the coming death of politics is bound to seem ridiculous or optimistic, depending on your disposition. Yet that is what the information revolution is likely to bring. For readers reared in a century saturated in politics, the idea that life could proceed without it may seem fanciful, the equivalent to claiming that one could live merely by absorbing nutrients from the air. Yet politics in the modern sense, as the preoccupation with controlling and rationalizing the power of the state, is mostly a modern invention. We believe it will end with the modern world, just as the tangle of feudal duties and obligations that engrossed the attentions of people in the Middle Ages ended with the Middle Ages. During the feudal period, as historian Martin van Creveld points out, politics did not exist. The very concept had yet to be invented and dates back only to the 16th century. The thought that politics as we know it did not exist prior to the modern period may seem surprising, especially given that Aristotle had written an essay of that title in the days of Alexander the Great. But look closely. Words used in ancient texts are not necessarily contemporary concepts. Aristotle also wrote an essay entitled Sophistical Refutations, a term about as meaningless today as politics was in the Middle Ages. The word simply was not in use. Its first known appearance in English dates to 1529. Even then, politics appears to have been a pejorative, derived from an old French word, politique, used to describe opportunists and temporizers. It took almost 2,000 years for Aristotle's latent concept to emerge with the meaning we now know. Why? Before the modern world could put Aristotle's word to a meaningful use, megapolitical conditions were required that dramatically raised the returns to violence. The gunpowder revolution, which we analyzed in The Great Reckoning, did just that. It raised the returns to violence far above what they had ever been. This made the question of who controlled the state more important than it had ever been. Logically and inevitably, Politics emerged from the struggle to control the sharply increased spoils of power. Politics began five centuries ago with the early stages of industrialism. Now it is dying. A widespread revulsion against politics and politicians is sweeping the world. You see it in news and speculation on the hidden details of Whitewater and the poorly disguised murder of Vincent Foster. You see it in numerous other scandals touching President Bill Clinton. You see in it reports of embezzlement by leading congressmen from the House Post Office. You see it in scandals leading to resignations in John Major's circle, and similar scandals in France, reaching two recent prime ministers, Edouard Balladur and Alain Juppé. 
Even larger scandals have been revealed in Italy, where seven-time Prime Minister Giulio Andreotti was brought to the dock to stand trial on charges that included links to the mafia and ordering the murder of Mino Pecorelli, an investigative journalist. Still other scandals have tarnished the reputation of Spanish Prime Minister Felipe González. Corruption allegations cost four Japanese prime ministers their jobs in the first five years of the 1990s. Canada's Justice Department alleged in a letter to Swiss authorities that former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney had received kickbacks on a 1.8 billion Canadian dollars sale of Airbus planes to Air Canada. Willie Claes, the Secretary General of NATO, was forced to resign under a cloud of corruption allegations. Even in Sweden, Mona Salen, a deputy prime minister and presumptive prime minister, was forced to resign in the face of allegations that she used government credit cards to purchase diapers and other household goods. Almost everywhere you turn in countries with mature welfare states, once thought of as well-governed, people hate their political leaders. Disdain as a leading indicator Moral outrage against corrupt leaders is not an isolated historical phenomenon, but a common precursor of change. It happens again and again, whenever one era gives way to another. Whenever technological change has divorced the old forms from the new moving forces of the economy, moral standards shift, and people begin to treat those in command of the old institutions with growing disdain. This widespread revulsion comes into evidence well before people develop a new coherent ideology of change. As we write, there is as yet little evidence of an articulate rejection of politics. That will come later. It has not yet occurred to most of your contemporaries that a life without politics is possible. What we have in the final years of the 20th century is inarticulate disdain. Something similar happened in the late 15th century, but at that time it was religion rather than politics that was in the process of being downsized. Notwithstanding popular belief in the sacredness of the sacerdotal office, both the higher and lower ranks of clergy were held in the utmost contempt, not unlike the popular attitude toward politicians and bureaucrats today. It was widely believed that the upper clergy were corrupt, worldly, and venal, and not without reason. Several 15th-century popes openly sported bastards. The lower clergy were held in even lower esteem as they proliferated in country and town, begging for alms and frequently offering to sell God's grace and the forgiveness of sins to anyone who would put cash into the bargain. Beneath the crust of superficial piety was a corrupt and increasingly dysfunctional system. Many lost respect for those who ran it long before anyone dared to say that it did not work. A life saturated with religion, making no distinction between the spiritual and the temporal, had exhausted its possibilities. Its end was inevitable long before Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg. A Secular Reformation we believe that the reaction against saturation politics is following a similar path. The death of the Soviet Union and the repudiation of socialism are part of a broad pattern of depoliticization sweeping the world. This is now most evident in a growing contempt for those who run the world's governments. 
It is driven only in part by the realization that they are corrupt and prone to sell indulgences from political difficulty in exchange for campaign contributions or special help on commodity trades to subvene their personal finances. The reaction against politicians is also motivated by the widening realization that much of what they do, at great cost, is futile, in the same way that organizing another pilgrimage of penitents to march barefoot in the snow or the founding of yet another order of mendicant monks in the late 15th century could have done little to improve productivity or relieve pressures on living standards. The Last Days of the Holy Mother Church At the end of the Middle Ages, the monolithic church as an institution had grown senile and counterproductive, a marked change from its positive economic contribution five centuries earlier. As we explored in the last chapter, the church played a leading role at the end of the 10th century in establishing order and facilitating economic recovery from the anarchy that marked the close of the Dark Ages. At that time, the church was indispensable to the survival of large numbers of small freeholders and serfs who made up the bulk of the Western European population. By the end of the 15th century, the church had become a major drag upon productivity. The burdens it imposed upon the population were pushing living standards down. Much the same thing can be said of the nation-state today. It was a necessary adaptation to the new megapolitical conditions created by the gunpowder revolution five centuries ago. The nation-state widened the scope of markets and displaced fragmented local authorities at a time when more encompassing trading areas brought large returns. The fact that merchants almost everywhere in Europe spontaneously allied themselves to the monarch at the center as he maneuvered to consolidate authority is itself telling evidence that the nation-state in its early form was good for business. It helped lift the burdens on commerce imposed by feudal landlords and local magnates. In a world where returns to violence were high and rising, the nation-state was a useful institution. But five centuries later, as this millennium draws to a close, megapolitical conditions have changed. Returns to violence are falling, and the nation-state, like the church at the twilight of the Middle Ages, is an anachronism that has become a drag on growth and productivity. Like the church then, the nation-state today has exhausted its possibilities. It is bankrupt, an institution grown to a senile extreme. Like the church then, it has served as the dominant form of social organization for five centuries. Having outlived the conditions that brought it into existence, it is ripe for a fall. And fall it will. Technology is precipitating a revolution in the exercise of power that will destroy the nation-state, just as assuredly as gunpowder weapons and the printing press destroyed the monopoly of the medieval church. If our reasoning is correct, the nation-state will be replaced by new forms of sovereignty, some of them unique in history, some reminiscent of the city-states and medieval merchant republics of the pre-modern world. What was old will be new after the year 2000. And what was unimaginable will be commonplace. As the scale of technology plunges, governments will find that they must compete like corporations for income charging no more for their services than they are worth to the people who pay for them.
the full implications of this change are all but unimaginable. Then and now. Something similar might have been said 500 years ago, at the turn of the 15th century. Then, as now, Western civilization stood at the threshold of a momentous transformation. Although almost no one knew it, medieval society was dying. Its death was neither widely anticipated nor understood. Nonetheless, the prevailing mood was one of deep gloom. This is common at the end of an era, as conventional thinkers sense that things are falling apart, that the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Yet their mental inertia is often too great to comprehend the implications of the emerging configurations of power. Medieval historian Johann Huizinga wrote of the waning days of the Middle Ages, the chroniclers of the 15th century have nearly all been the dupes of an absolute misappreciation of their times, of which the real moving forces escaped their attention. Myths Betrayed Major changes in the underlying dynamics of power tend to confound conventional thinkers because they expose myths that rationalize the old order but lack any real explanatory power. At the end of the Middle Ages, as now, there was a particularly wide gap between the received myths and reality. As Huizinga said of the Europeans in the late 15th century, their whole system of ideas was permeated by the fiction that chivalry ruled the world. This has a close second in the contemporary assumption that it is ruled by votes and popularity contests. Neither proposition stands up to close scrutiny. Indeed, the idea that the course of history is determined by democratic tallies of wishes is every bit as silly as the medieval notion that it is determined by an elaborated code of manners called chivalry. The fact that saying so borders on heresy suggests how divorced conventional thinking is from a realistic grasp of the dynamics of power in late industrial society. It is an issue we examine closely in this book. In our view, Voting was an effect, rather than a cause, of the megapolitical conditions that brought forth the modern nation-state. Mass democracy and the concept of citizenship flourished as the nation-state grew. They will falter as the nation-state falters, causing every bit as much dismay in Washington as the erosion of chivalry caused in the court of the Duke of Burgundy 500 years ago. Parallels Between Chivalry and Citizenship if you can understand how and why the importance of chivalric oaths faded away with the transition to an industrial organization of society, you will be better positioned to see how citizenship as we now know it could fade away in the information age. Both served a similar function. They facilitated the exercise of power under two quite different sets of megapolitical conditions. Feudal oaths prevailed at a time when defensive technology was paramount, sovereignties were fragmented, and private individuals and corporate bodies exercised military power in their own right. Before the gunpowder revolution, wars had normally been fought by small contingents of armed men. Even the most powerful monarchs did not have militum perpetuum, or standing armies. They drew their military support from their vassals, the greater lords, who in turn drew upon their vassals, the lesser lords, who in turn drew upon their vassals, the knights. 
The whole chain of allegiance carried down the hierarchy to the person of the meanest social standing who was considered worthy to bear arms. Uniforms or Divergences Unlike a modern army, a medieval army before the rise of citizenship did not march on the field of battle outfitted in uniforms. To the contrary, each retainer or vassal, each knight, baronet, or lord of different degree had his own distinctive livery that reflected his place in the hierarchy. Instead of uniforms, there were divergences that emphasized the vertical structure of society in which each station was different. As Huizinga said, medieval warriors were distinguished by outward signs of divergences, liveries, colors, badges, party cries. Nor were wars fought only by governments or nations. As Martin van Krefeld has pointed out, modern notions of war, as stylized by strategists like Karl von Clausewitz, misrepresent the reality of pre-modern conflict. Van Krefeld writes, For a thousand years after the fall of Rome, armed conflict was waged by different kinds of social entities. Among them were barbarian tribes, the church, feudal barons of every rank, free cities, even private individuals. Nor were the armies of the period anything like those we know today. Indeed, it is difficult to find a word that will do them justice. War was waged by shoals of retainers who donned military garb and followed their lord. Under such conditions, it was obviously crucial to the lord that his retainers actually donned their military garb and followed, hence the heavy emphasis placed upon the chivalric oath. The honor of the medieval knight and the duty of the conscript soldier served parallel functions. The medieval man was bound by oaths to individuals and the church in much the way that moderns are bound by citizenship to the nation-state. Violating an oath was the medieval equivalent of treason. People in late medieval times went to extremes to avoid violating oaths, just as millions of modern citizens went to extremes in the world wars, charging machine gun nests to fulfill their duties as citizens. Both chivalry and citizenship added an extra dimension to the simple calculus that would otherwise deter unindoctrinated human beings from going onto a battlefield and staying there when the going got rough. Chivalry and citizenship both led people to kill and to risk death. Only demanding and exaggerated values that are strongly reinforced by leading institutions can serve that function. Circumventing Cost-Benefit Analysis The success and survival of any system depends upon its capacity to marshal military effort in times of conflict and crisis. Obviously, the decision on the part of a medieval knight or a private in the trenches in World War I to risk his life in battle was not likely to be informed by a sober cost-benefit calculation. Seldom are wars so easily fought, or do rewards for those who bear the brunt of the fighting so far overshadow the possible costs that an army of economic optimizers could be recruited to rush out to the battlefield. Almost every war, and indeed most battles, have moments in which the tide could turn on a heartbeat. 
As students of military history are well aware, the difference between defeat and victory is often told by the valor, bravery, and ferocity with which individual soldiers take up their task. If the men doing the fighting are not willing to die over a piece of ground that would not be worth a fig once the battle stops, then they probably will not prevail against an otherwise evenly matched foe. This has important implications. The more effective sovereignties are in limiting defections and encouraging military effort, the more likely they are to prevail militarily. In warfare, the most useful value systems induce people to behave in ways that short-term rational calculation would rule out. No organization could mobilize military power effectively if the individuals it sent into battle felt free to calculate where their own best advantage lay and join in the fight or run away accordingly. If so, they would almost never fight. Only under the most propitious circumstances, or the most desperate, would the rational person care to engage in a potentially lethal battle based upon short-term cost-benefit analysis. Perhaps Homo economicus might fight on a sunny day, when the forces on his side were overwhelming, the enemy weak, and the potential rewards of battle enticing. Perhaps. He might also fight if backed into a corner by marauding cannibals. But those are extreme circumstances. What of the more common conditions of warfare? which are neither so attractive that they would pass the scrutiny of cost-benefit analysis, nor so desperate that they afford no way out. It is here that concepts like chivalry and citizenship are important contributors to the successful use of military power. Long before a battle begins, predominant organizations must convince individuals that upholding certain duties to the lord or the nation-state are more important than life itself. The myths and rationalizations that societies employ to encourage risk-taking on the battlefield are a key part of their military prowess. To be effective, these myths must be tailored to the prevailing megapolitical conditions. The fiction that chivalry rules the world means nothing today, especially in a city like New York. But it was the cherished myth of feudalism. It justified and rationalized the ties of obligation that bound everyone under the domination of the church and a warlike nobility. At a time when private wars of covetousness were commonplace, the exercise of power and the very survival of individuals depended upon the willingness of others to fulfill their promises of military service under conditions of duress. It was obviously crucial that those promises be dependable. Before Nationality Unlike today, the concept of nationality played little or no role in establishing sovereignty in the Middle Ages. Monarchs, as well as some princes of the church and powerful lords, possessed territories by private right. In a way, that has no modern analogy. These lords could sell or give away territories or acquire new ones by conveyance or marriage as well as by conquest. Today, you could hardly imagine the United States falling under the sovereignty of a non-English-speaking Portuguese president because he happened to marry the former American president's daughter. Yet, something similar was commonplace in medieval Europe. Power passed by hereditary descent. 
Cities and countries changed sovereigns the way that antiques change owners. In many cases, sovereigns were not native to the regions in which their properties lay. Sometimes they did not speak the local language or spoke it badly with heavy accents. But it made little difference to the ties of personal obligation, whether a Spaniard was king of Athens or an Austrian was king of Spain. Corporate Sovereignty Sovereignty was also exercised by religious corporations, like the Knights Templar, the Knights of St. John, the Teutonic Knights, and the Knights of Malta. While the Knights of Malta still exist, and as we write are poised to recover sovereignty over Fort St. Angelo in Malta, such hybrid institutions have had no modern counterparts. They combined religious, social, judicial, and financial activities with sovereignty over localities. While they exercised territorial jurisdiction, they were almost the opposite of today's governments in that nationality played no role in the mobilization of their support or their scheme of governance. The members and officers of these religious orders were drawn from all parts of Christian Europe, or Christendom as it was known. No one thought it appropriate or necessary that those who ruled be drawn from the local populations. The mobilization of support in the fragmented medieval scheme of governance did not depend upon a national identity or duty to the state, as in modern times, but upon personal loyalty and customary ties that had to be upheld as a matter of personal honor. Oaths to uphold these duties could be sworn by anyone from anywhere, provided he was otherwise deemed worthy by his station in life. The Vow Chivalric vows bound individuals to one another and were sworn on the honor of those who were parties to them. As Huizinga wrote, in making a vow, people imposed some privation upon themselves as a spur to accomplishment of the actions they were pledged to perform. So much importance was placed upon honoring vows that people frequently risked death or suffered serious privations in order to avoid breaking their vows. Often, the oaths themselves bound individuals to perform, as matters of honor, acts that would probably seem ludicrous to you and most listeners of this book. For example, the Knights of the Star swore an oath never to retire more than four acres from the battlefield, through which rule, soon afterwards, more than ninety of them lost their lives. The prohibition on even tactical retreat is irrational as a military strategy but it was a common imperative of the chivalric vows. Before the Battle of Agincourt, the King of England issued an order that knights on patrol should remove their armor, on grounds that it would have been incompatible with their honor to withdraw from enemy lines if they were wearing their coat armor. It so happened that the king himself got lost and passed by the village that had been night quarters for the vanguard of his army. Since he was wearing armor, his chivalric honor forbade him to simply turn around when he discovered his mistake and returned to the village. He spent the night in an exposed position. As silly as this example seems, King Henry probably did not miscalculate in thinking that he would have risked more in trespassing his honor by retreating and thus setting a demoralizing example for his entire army than he did by sleeping behind enemy lines. 
The history of the Middle Ages is filled with examples of prominent people fulfilling pledges that would seem ridiculous to us. In many cases, the actions proposed involved no objective connection to any benefit other than a vivid demonstration of the importance those undertaking them placed upon the vow itself. Among the common vows, to keep one eye closed, to eat and drink only when standing, and to become a self-imposed cripple by entering a one-person chain gang. There was a widespread custom of wearing painful foot irons. If today you saw someone struggling along the street in a heavy leg iron, you would probably assume that he was insane, not that he was a man of great virtue. Yet in the context of chivalry, willingly donning such a device was a badge of honor. And there were many similar customs that would seem equally ludicrous today. As Huizinga describes it, many took a pledge not to sleep in a bed on Saturday, not to take animal food on Friday, etc. One act of asceticism is heaped upon another. One nobleman promises to wear no armor, to drink no wine one day in every week, not to sleep in a bed, not to sit down to meals, to wear the hair shirt. Lent survives as a much moderated version of this self-imposed discomfort. Many enthusiasts for vows formed orders that placed particularly difficult privations on their members as tests of honor. The Order of Galois and Galois, for example, dressed during summers in furs and fur-lined hoods and lighted a fire in the hearth, whereas in winter they were only allowed to wear a simple coat without fur, neither mantles, not hats nor gloves, and had only very light bedclothes. As Huizinga reports, it is not surprising that a great many members died of cold. Medieval self-flagellation was a grim torture which people inflicted on themselves in the hope of inducing a judging and punishing God to put away his rod, to forgive their sins, to spare them the greater chastisements which would otherwise be theirs in this life and the next. Norman Cohn Flagellation Then and Now it was a short step from the vow that imposed danger and privation to ordeals, pilgrimages, mortification, discomfort, and even purposefully self-inflicted injury. These could be seen as highly beneficial and praiseworthy in the medieval period. They were gestures of the seriousness with which vows were held, a logic that is not entirely foreign even today to fraternity or sorority initiations. Stifling in summer, freezing in winter, or walking in barefoot pilgrimages in the snow was relatively tame compared to the grim torture of self-flagellation. This was a particularly medieval form of penance that came into being almost exactly at the same time feudalism began. It was first adopted by hermits in the monastic communities of Camaldoli and Fonte Avalanna early in the 11th century. Rather than just walking barefoot in cold weather, flagellants organized processions in which they would march day and night from one town to the next, and each time they came to a town, they would arrange themselves in groups before the church and flog themselves for hours on end. We believe that people in the future who look back at the era of the nation-state will find some of the undertakings done in the 20th century in the name of citizenship as ludicrous as we consider self-flagellation. 
From the vantage point of the Information Society, the spectacle of soldiers in the modern period traveling halfway around the world to entertain death out of loyalty to the nation-state will come to be seen as grotesque and silly. It will seem not far different from some of the extraordinary and exaggerated rites of chivalry, like walking about in leg irons, which otherwise sensible people took pride in doing during the feudal period. Chivalry Yields to Citizenship Chivalry faded away to be replaced by citizenship when megapolitical conditions changed and the military purpose of the vow to one's lord was antiquated. The world of gunpowder weapons and industrial armies involved very different relations between the individuals who did the fighting and their commanders. Citizenship emerged when returns to violence were high and rising, and the state had vastly greater resources than the social entities that waged war in the medieval period. Because of its great power and wealth, the nation-state could strike a bargain directly with the mass of common soldiers who fought in its uniform. Such bargains proved to be far cheaper to the state and much less troublesome than attempts to assemble military forces by negotiating with powerful lords and local notables, each of whom was capable of resisting demands that ran counter to his interests, as no individual citizen in the nation-state conceivably could. For reasons we explore at greater depth later, citizenship crucially depended upon the fact that no individual or small group of individuals was megapolitically capable of exercising military power independently. As information technology alters the logic of battle, it will antiquate the myths of citizenship just as assuredly as gunpowder antiquated medieval chivalry. Hell's Angels on Horseback The aristocracy of mounted warriors that dominated Western Europe for centuries were hardly the gentlemen their descendants became. They were rough and violent, in today's terms, they could be better understood as the medieval equivalent of motorcycle gangs. The rules of manners and pretenses of chivalry served more to temper their excesses than as a description of the way they really behaved. Even an encyclopedic account of the rules and obligations of chivalry would have revealed little or nothing about the foundations of the nobility's power. Perfection as a Synonym for Exhaustion the advent of effective gunpowder weapons at the end of the 15th century detonated a powerful blast under their feet, just as armed knights had perfected their art as never before. By then, careful breeding had finally produced a battle horse 16 hands high, a steed with the stature to carry comfortably a mounted knight in full armor. Yet perfection, as C. Northcott Parkinson shrewdly noted, is achieved only by institutions on the point of collapse. Just as the new warhorse was perfected, new weapons were deployed to blast horse and knight from the battlefield. These new gunpowder weapons could be fired by commoners. They required little skill to use, but were expensive to procure in quantity. Their proliferation steadily increased the importance of commerce as compared to agriculture, which had been the foundation of the feudal economy. War at a Higher Scale How did gunpowder weapons precipitate such a transformation? For one thing, 
They raised the scale of fighting, which meant that waging war soon became far more costly than it had been during the medieval period. Before the gunpowder revolution, wars had normally been fought by groups so small that they could be levied over a small and poor territory. Gunpowder gave a new advantage to fighting on a larger scale. Only leaders with claims on rich subjects could afford to field effective forces under the new conditions. Those leaders who best accommodated the growth of commerce, usually monarchs who allied themselves with the urban merchants, found that they enjoyed a competitive advantage on the battlefield. In Van Crevelt's words, Thanks in part to the superior financial resources at their disposal, they could purchase more cannon than anybody else and blast the opposition to pieces. Even though it would be centuries before the full logic of gunpowder weapons would be unleashed in the citizen armies of the French Revolution, an early hint of the transformation of warfare by gunpowder was the adoption of military uniforms in the Renaissance. The uniforms aptly symbolized the new relations between the warrior and the nation-state that went hand-in-hand with the transition from chivalry to citizenship. In effect, the new nation-state would strike a uniform bargain with its citizens, unlike the special divergent bargains struck by the monarch or the pope with a long chain of vassals under feudalism. In the old system, everyone had a different place in an architectonic hierarchy. Everyone had a bargain as unique as his coat of arms and the colorful pennants he flew. Lowering the Opportunity Costs of Riches Gunpowder weapons radically altered the nature of society in yet another way. They separated the exercise of power from physical strength, thereby lowering the opportunity cost of mercantile activity. Rich merchants no longer had to depend upon their own finesse and strength in hand-to-hand combat or on mercenaries of uncertain loyalty to defend themselves. They could hope to be defended by the new, larger armies of the great monarchs. As William Playfair said of the Middle Ages, while human force was the power by which men were annoyed, in cases of hostility, to be wealthy and powerful long together was then impossible. When gunpowder came along, it was impossible to be powerful without being rich. Status and Static Understanding For many of the same reasons that most people today are ill-prepared to anticipate the new dynamics of the information society, the leading thinkers of medieval society were unable to anticipate or understand the rise of commerce that played so important a part in shaping the modern period. Most people five centuries ago viewed their changing society in static terms. As Huizinga said, very little property is, in the modern sense, liquid, while power is not yet associated predominantly with money. It is still rather inherent in the person and depends on a sort of religious awe which he inspires. It makes itself felt by pomp and magnificence or a numerous train of faithful followers. Feudal or hierarchic thought expresses the idea of grandeur by visible signs. Because people in the late Middle Ages thought before all else of status, they were ill-prepared to comprehend that merchants could possibly contribute anything of importance to the life of the realm. Almost without exception, merchants were commoners. They fit at the bottom of the three estates, below the nobility and the clergy. 
Even the more perceptive thinkers of late medieval society failed to appreciate the importance of commerce and other forms of enterprise outside of farming for accumulating wealth. To them, poverty was an apostolic virtue. They literally made no distinction between a wealthy banker and a beggar. In Huizinga's words, no distinction in principle was made in the third estate between rich and poor citizens, nor between townsmen and country people. Neither occupation nor wealth mattered in their scheme, merely chivalric status. This blindness to the economic dimension of life was reinforced by churchmen who were the ideological guardians of medieval life. They were so far from grasping the importance of commerce that one widely applauded 15th century reform program proposed that all persons of non-noble status be required to devote themselves exclusively to handicrafts or farm labor. No role was contemplated for commerce whatsoever. The date 1492, conventionally used to separate medieval from modern history, serves as well as any other dividing point, for in the perspective of world history, Columbus's voyage symbolizes the beginning of a new relationship between Western Europe and the rest of the world. Frederick C. Lane The Birth of the Industrial Age Many of the keenest minds of the 15th century totally missed one of the more important developments in history, one that began under their eyes. The eclipse of feudalism marked the onset of the great modern phase of Western predominance. It was a period of rising returns to violence and rising scale in enterprise. For the past two and a half centuries, the modern economy has delivered an unparalleled rise in living standards for that fraction of the world that enjoyed its greatest benefits. The catalysts for these changes were new technologies, from gunpowder weapons to the printing press, which changed the boundaries of life in ways that few could grasp. By the final decade of the 15th century, Explorers like Columbus were just beginning to open an approach to vast, unknown continents. For the first time in the immemorial ages of human existence, the whole world was compassed. Galleons, new high-masted improvisations on Mediterranean galleys, circumnavigated the globe, charting the passages that were to become trade routes and thoroughfares for disease and conquest. Conquistadors, wielding their new bronze cannon on sea and on shore, blasted open new horizons. They found fortunes in gold and spices, planted the seeds of new cash crops from tobacco to potatoes, and staked out new grazing lands for their cattle. The First Industrial Technology Just as the cannon was opening new economic horizons, the printing press opened new intellectual horizons. It was the first machine of mass production, a signature technology that marked the onset of industrialism. In saying this, we share the view advanced by Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations that the Industrial Revolution had already happened well before he wrote. It had not reached maturity, to be sure, but the principles of mass production and the factory system were well established. His famous example of the pin manufacturers makes this case. 
Smith explains how 18 separate operations are employed to produce pins. Because of specialized technology and the division of labor, each employee could make 4,800 times more pins in a day than an individual could fabricate on his own. Smith's example underscores the fact that the Industrial Revolution began centuries earlier than historians conventionally assume. Most textbooks would date its origins to the middle of the 18th century. That is not unreasonable as a date for the takeoff stage in the improvement of living standards, but the actual megapolitical transition between feudalism and industrialism began much earlier, at the end of the 15th century. Its impact was felt almost immediately in the transformation of dominant institutions, particularly in the eclipse of the medieval church. The historians who place the Industrial Revolution later are really measuring something else, the takeoff of living standards attributable to mass production powered by engines. This raised the value of unskilled labor and led to falling prices for a wide variety of consumer goods, Indeed, the fact that living standards began to rise sharply at different times in different countries is a tip-off that something other than the megapolitical transition is being measured. The Cambridge Economic History of Europe speaks of industrial revolutions in the plural, explicitly linking them to the sustained growth of national incomes. In Japan and Russia, this income surge was delayed until the end of the 19th century. The rise in living standards and sustained growth of national income in other parts of Asia and some parts of Africa was a 20th century phenomenon. In some parts of Africa, sustained growth remains a dream to this day. But that does not mean that these regions are not living in the modern age. Falling Income in Transition The growth of income is not synonymous with the advent of industrialism. The shift to an industrial society was a megapolitical event, not measurable directly in income statistics. Indeed, real incomes for most Europeans fell for the first two centuries of the Industrial Age. They only began rising sometime after the beginning of the 18th century, and they did not recover to levels of 1250 until about 1750. We place the launch of the Industrial Age at the end of the 15th century. It was the industrial features of early modern technology, including chemically powered weapons and printing presses, that precipitated the collapse of feudalism. Lowering the Cost of Knowledge The capacity to mass-produce books was incredibly subversive to medieval institutions, just as microtechnology will prove subversive to the modern nation-state. Printing rapidly undermined the church's monopoly on the word of God, even as it created a new market for heresy. Ideas inimical to the closed feudal society spread rapidly, as ten million books were published by the final decade of the 15th century. Because the church attempted to suppress the printing press, most of the new volumes were published in those areas of Europe where the writ of established authority was the weakest. This may prove to be a close analogy with attempts by the U.S. government today to suppress encryption technology. The Church found that censorship did not suppress the spread of subversive technology. It merely assured 
that it was put to its most subversive use.